the li- the, my life revolved around getting another bottle of vodka, another ounce of weed. Like, you know, people, are, it's like what I was saying, six months is such a long time. It's like I've spent the last 10 years, you know, drinking and really just being miserable and trying to escape. So what, what is six months to give me the rest of my life back? That was Matt. He first went to a detox when he was 21. He's going to be spending his 29th birthday at the Buttery. We will be following his story until he leaves. The Buttery, immortalised in Paul Kelly's iconic song, is Australia's most famous drug and alcohol service, a therapeutic community celebrating 50 years. Hi, I'm George Katzi. And I'm Mandy Nolan. And this is the story of this special place and what brings people to their door. Good afternoon, The Buttery, Amanda speaking. Oh, hi, Matt. Yeah, yeah, I think, we, yeah, we do. We, we've got you booked in right now for an intake assessment. Well, great, let's get started. And I can see you're already enrolled with uh, one of our other programs, so um, with one of our outreach programs, so we can, um, I mean, we've already got your other details here already. So um, you're wanting to, um, what I can see here is that you're wanting to um, come to our therapeutic community, the TC. Yep. All right, so let's get started. I just want to go through a little bit of um, eligibility with you just so um, we can... um, Getting into the buttery and meeting the criteria at intake is part of the buttery's recovery process. You don't just ring and get in that week. I mean, there are wait lists. You have to phone in every week to stay on that list and it can take as long as six months. And when you finally get the green light for a stay at the buttery, you need to become drug and alcohol free. It's not a detox, it's a rehab facility. Commitment to meeting these expectations is the beginning of the pathway to recovery. Debbie and Amanda work in intake. They're experienced and compassionate and they know that this conversation that they have every week and the support and information they give is integral to their recovery journey. The reason why we um, ask people to ring on a weekly basis while they're on the wait list is because um, it, it's it's therapeutic for them um, to be actually putting that action in, you know, towards um, that make, it's really that first step to recovery is to admitting that you've got a problem and, and, and putting that into action. It shows that they're... they're they're ready. Like, yeah, like we, I think we consider the wait list, you know, it would be great if there were more beds and everyone could come as soon as they call, but that's part of the addictive behaviour as well and getting the quick fix. But the part of the wait list is also part of the, th- the start of the therapeutic process. So, and, and they, they need, like Amanda said, they need to invest in their own process. And so that is calling each week. You know, and then we have a we have a conversation. So it's not just like, "Yep, thanks." We have a conversation. How are you going? We can link them in with other supports in the interim, and and it is part of the bigger picture because it's a very complex process. 
and Matt, after months of waiting and phoning weekly, made it through their door. I asked him what it was like getting the call that told him he was in. I was like, fuck, do I really want this? Like, can I? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I was Very like, fun. fuck, yeah. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, and it kind of got, I got a bit real. I was like, it's happening now. I'm not just making phone calls. And yeah, it got a bit real. Um, Did you have to have your, like, it's that thing, isn't it, where um, you kind of, you know, how you drink yourself sober? Yeah. You kind of go, well, yeah. I'm going to have to, ha- uh, to get there. I'm going to have, because I'm going to detox. I better finish all this. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was definitely like, not a final hurrah because I've done a lot to last hurrahs, but it was like, you know, I made a, yeah, I need to, need to make sure I'm stocked up to get into detox. Um, but here you are. Here I am. Months, yeah. Five and a half months later. Yeah. So, so tell me, um, what it was like walking in those, the front door of the buttery for you. Five and um, months. really, do you remember that? yeah, I do. It was really kind of surreal. I'd like, I'd never seen that like photos of the property or anything before. Um, my father actually flew up with me, um, cause there was a good chance I would have drunk on the plane. Like it's just what I do. He, he sounds like a really loving dad. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a really supportive. He's a good man. I got, I'm really lucky. Um, uh, my family's really supportive. Um, and I've put them through, I put them through a lot and they're still, they're still with me, which is, yeah, I love Yeah, they them. love you. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Um, but yeah, so my dad flew up with me, um, basically dropped me at the front door. I looked at the intake office and kind of like, my first thought, honestly, was like, well, this place is really clean. I wonder where the, like, where the cleaners are. Little did I know, it's actually us that keep the, <laughs> keep the property clean. So, yeah, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, no idea. Yeah, that you would have so much self-responsibility. Like, tell me yeah. about some of the what you do here, like as far as the responsibility um, of living in a therapeutic community. Yeah, so currently I'm actually running the main kitchen. Um which is all the food ordering for the, you know, 25 to 30 residents we have here. Um, I've got no hospitality experience, so it's like quite stressful for me, but yeah. Um, so I'm running the main kitchen. I'm doing, um, like rosters to get people cooking. I'm making sure that the food's kind of rationed because we don't, we are on quite a, quite a budget here. Um, so I've worked out that. What is the budget? What what do you get to spend so, in the kitchen? Uh, it's thirty dollars per person for the main, a week for the main kitchen and forty dollars in the houses. So each of us are fed on about ten dollars a day. Wow, um, that yeah, is a, you are really having to be a. We um we eat well, so yeah. don't don't get me wrong. We eat we I don't think any of us have ever gone hungry. Um, the local bakery donates a lot of bread to us. Um, yeah, no, we eat well, but it is quite um. So when, so for instance, when someone leaves, um, if they finish the program, we do a pancake breakfast, uh-huh. um, and we make them a cake. So that Tuesday is pancakes and then cake. And to budget in just that extra couple of things is actually like, you know, what well, we're not getting tomato sauce this week. It's that kind of like. How important is that? Like it, it, it's in some programs, and I know because I've done work in them, they're like very high end private programs mm. where people have chefs cooking. Mm. Um, what is what is it like as someone who is actually engaged in the program to have that level of responsibility? What is it? Has it taught you skills that you've like actually going without something to get something? Yeah, so it um it's almost old fashioned. It, 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 uh, yeah, it's um it's very humbling in a way. Um, it's also so I got I have really bad kind of control and perfectionism problems. Um, 
so whenever something is, you know, something's got to miss out or someone's unhappy, I feel really like, oh, no, I made a fuck that up. Like, you know, so it's challenging that part of me that, you know, look, it doesn't have to be perfect for everyone to, to have enough. Um, and, yeah, it's I, I, some, a lot of the things here I often wonder, is it by design or is it just is that just, you know, the buttery being the buttery? Um so I'm uh, most of the people in here are in their thirties up. Um, and I was the youngest person here for quite a while, but I still managed to, to find, you know, to find where I fit in and also do the program to the best of my ability with everyone else. Like, you know, in the TC model, everyone relies on everyone else to be equal and hold each other accountable. And yeah, so I think in a way it really fit what I needed, but also, yeah, I've, I've learned heaps about myself. Um, it's going to, yeah. So you've been here five and a half yeah. months and you're looking at leaving at the end of six months? No. So when I got here, I thought it was just a six-month program. I didn't know that they had the transition and the halfway house as an option. Uh-huh. Um, and some of the other residents kind of were like, Matt, if you're here, you may as well, you know, yeah. go all the way. Um, so where's the halfway house? In Byron Bay. Yeah. Yeah. So I will be here. Uh, for the whole seven and a half. Um, so I have nine more, nine more weeks left. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Like you, you, someone that was looking forward to, to the end of the program and now you're getting closer. Do you feel nervous about leaving? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I think the thing that I think scared is the right word. Um, the thing that scares me is, you know, there is no cure to addiction. Um, and I think I'd be kidding myself if I would say that, you know, seven and a month, seven and a half months here uh, was going to fix me. Mm. So um, being realistic, I, I know that once I leave here, I still have to work a program. I still need to, you know, remember daily that, well, you know, as they say in AA, don't pick up no matter what, one day at a time. Um, I just needed the buttery to kind of give me that. Um We've got a foundation. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah, give me the foundation. Yeah. Um, and also to yeah. recognise, I imagine what you get, which I've seen here, is there's people here that you probably will create lifelong friendships with Yeah. that you probably would never have connected with outside of here. Yeah, 100%. I've, um, I've met some really, really, really amazing people in here. Um. And there's no way I would have, you know, like my, my drug taking was different to their drug taking in the sense that, um, you know, just kind of the crowds we ran around with um, or at, towards the end of mine, I wasn't running around with crowds. It was just solo, you know, isolating, lonely using. Um, but I wouldn't have a, had a chance to meet these people. And I think being here, especially with the goal, like the goal of sobriety in mind, mm. Um, it gives us a lot nicer and safer thing to base our friendship on. Yeah. Um, so it must I, be like a real, like you must be, because you've taken away the the alcohol and the drugs, which is often, you know, the use yeah. of getting of drugs can often sit where yeah. you think it's a friendship. Yeah. Um, and then often it's not. Um, I, I say this from experience yeah. of um, <laughs> knowing that, um I remember once we always had a mole ball on the table. Yeah. And then when we stopped smoking weed, like a whole lot of 
I went, I thought they were my friends. They never yeah, come over yeah, anymore. Like yeah. when the mobile was gone, yeah. they were all gone. Yeah, no, I feel that. It's, um, but different people will sit at your table. Yeah, that's it. So like I've always, my friendships, I guess, were always transactional or there was something else that was, yeah, like, you know, the chop bowl or, you know, a sheet of acid. That's what the friendship was. It wasn't actually, you know, once that were removed, it was like, what the fuck are we doing together? Like, yeah. I don't know this person. I don't actually like this person. Yeah. Um, and here, like, you know, because, yeah, I've been really able to see which people that I gel with, which people I want to be friends with. Um, and there's no transaction, like, you know, where it's purely just giving of time. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. So tell me a little bit too about um, the halfway house that you go to. How long will you be going there for? Um, I believe that it's a minimum Minimum? Yeah, they give you at least three months there. Great. Um, you know, so it's just a – and you're still connected to the buttery, so you still see one of the caseworkers once a week. Um, there's still, like, pretty, you know, strict rules. The buttery operates with a lot of rules. For people who have lived with addiction, learning how to live in a shared community is part of what prepares them for living cooperatively when they leave. Part of that training is living with rules. I mean, a lot of rules. Rules and rituals are foundational to the history of the buttery. Soon we'll speak with Barry Evans in more detail. Every person we interviewed spoke about the rules and in reflection, how important they were to their recovery. This is how they were for Matt. It's so, uh, so there's two, it's multi, multifaceted. Um, when I came in, I was like, this is a fucking ridiculous, like, can't pat dogs, can't turn on the radio. Can't for six. pat dogs. Yeah, can't pat dogs. You can't, you know, you can't shake hands. You can't give each other a hug. I was like, this is nonsense. Like, um, just everything has a rule. You can't eat after certain times. You, you know, it's all just everything. Everything has a rule. Um, and I just thought it was absolutely fucking ridiculous. Uh, half the things, once I knew that there was a rule, I wanted to do it more. Mm. Um, now I kind of understand them all. So what, um, how do you understand it? Tell me about the not patting dogs. So not patting dogs, the way I uh, see it is, so I personally, I love dogs. I really want to pat every dog I see. Um, but if I can say no to myself to pat the dog and make myself feel good, um, I look at it as though I'm, you know, practicing that muscle of saying no to myself, building that boundary within myself to be able to say no to something I want to do. Um Hopefully I can apply that to, you know, drug taking or, you know, know that I can say no to myself. Um, I love that. Does anyone ever bring a dog in here and walk through? Like, um, no, yeah, like, no. So sometimes, like, if we go to AA meetings, there'll be dogs, oh. uh, you know, the beach. There's, like, there are always opportunities to pat dogs. Across the road, there's goats, <laughs> horses, like. I can see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, now you've explained that, I get it. Yeah. So when it comes to all the rules, you must now, when new people come in, what's it like watching them deal with the rules? Because you're like, oh, wise man. Now. Yeah, yeah. So that's the that's the weird thing is I'm I'm pretty um, <laughs> uh, I I got really short with people. And I was like, can't do that, can't do this, can't do that, can't stop doing that, can't pat that. And some people are like Matt, you got to calm down. Like they just they just pat the dog, and I was like, I know, but you can't. You're not allowed. <laughs> so I kind of had to change my ways and be like, look, and explain why we weren't doing it rather than mm. just kind of slapping at people. Um, yeah. It's that thing of actually too, isn't it? I imagine the understanding there's a boundary. Yeah. 
and that impulse you have to always step over it of actually going, I don't need to. Yeah. I can respect that boundary. Yeah. I think that's that's a big part of it is, um, yeah, I don't need to um, is actually a really good way of putting it. Like I really want to. I really want to do that, but I don't need to. Mm. Um, and I've made a lot of, like, mistakes through the program. I've had heaps of paperwork about, you know. Um, when you say paperwork, is that when – are they, like, little reports on um, – So the paperwork is, like um, – so they're called personal development agreements or tasks or um, their consequences, not punishments, <laughs> but okay, their consequences. Yeah. Um, so my first couple of weeks in here, I told someone to get fucked or, you know, um, so I got put on a, a bit of paperwork to uh, focus on my anger management, um, do an anger management plan, write how my, like do a written piece. So it was like two pages of how, uh, my anger has served me in the past, um, which was actually pretty um, like a good process because I really went back to how I've used anger through my childhood and, you know, through school to kind of, you know, as a, as a front so people wouldn't, you know, yeah. get in my way and how it didn't really serve me or how it served me and looked, protected me once, but now it just kind of pushes people away. Um and I haven't told someone to get fucked that uh, since. So, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. You're really naked here, aren't you? Yeah. Like, you can't hide. No. Um, you know, where there's 20 other, 20 to 30 other people here that are all doing the same thing, and we're with each other all the time. Um, I think you know, as an you addict, must want to tell people to get. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, hundred percent. You just got to find another day. way to do it. Yeah, yeah. So it's like I, yeah, the dog. yeah. It is. I, I often, I often want to tell people to get fucked or fuck off, or you know. Yeah. But um, uh, it's about being able to communicate that in a more helpful way. Um, I'm often caught up in my own head. Um, you know, it's all about me. It's everyone. You know how they're affecting me. Um, I've given very little thought in the past to how I affect other people um, or what's going on in someone else's life that maybe, you know, maybe they're having a rough day and that's why they're not talking to me. Um, or maybe they're having a rough day, that's why they're being short. So rather than telling them to get fucked, I can kind of process that and be like, maybe I'll step back for a little bit, approach them and see how they're going. Um which These is, are powerful. That's a powerful yeah. human lesson that yeah. a lot of people could learn. Yeah. Because there is that thing, isn't it? You can go, get fucked, or are you okay? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, which is still kind of even saying it, I'm like, that is very, like, bizarre. It's not bizarre, but it's a very new way of thinking for me. Yeah. Um, generally, if people are behaving weirdly, yeah. they're not okay. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, and my, my instinct is always to leave them to do their God, imagine yeah. when you're driving instead of having a because when you hit the horn the horn <laughs> yeah. is the get fucked, get fucked yeah. and you need one that goes are you okay <laughs> <laughs> the empathy horn the empathy horn yeah I don't think it'd be used much but no, it'd be it'd, nice if it was yeah sounds like you're getting some great oh, these are great skills for life yeah I um I, I made a joke with my parents. They didn't really laugh, but I said, um, I need to go to the buttery and be reparented. Um, yeah, I just meant it more like I don't know how to function in a in fucking society. Did they take it personally? Because I imagine, because what happens with parents, <laughs> yeah. you know, I've got five kids myself and I'm a, obviously is that 
um, it's a bit like you're saying is that we take everything on, it's about us and that you're going, you don't want to see, you know, for when your child says that you go, oh, I failed. Yeah, I am. Um, Are you aware, like, is that something that's, um, because you've got to go out and make your own Yeah, life, yes. You know. Yeah, I um, I don't. I hope they didn't take it. They wouldn't. Yeah, oh, they might. They'd be no, so yeah. proud that yeah. you're doing. They are. Um, but what you're doing is show is actually yeah. taking responsibility. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm owning. I'm owning my shit. Even like my parents did everything. They did the best uh, with what they had. Like you know, um, they love me. They're you know, I'm fed. They still look after. They still support me. Um, and yeah, you know, I gotta, I, I gotta own my shit. Like. Oh. Yeah. It's very yeah. responsible. That's good. So what before we go, just finishing up, Matt, so thank you so much for sharing your story. Right. Um, what are you hoping for you when you leave here? Do you do you have goals and things that you're aiming towards for when you get out there? Like what are, what are you holding out there? Um or is that something where you go, I'm actually gonna reel that back and make it much smaller? Yeah, I it's the latter. So I think um I've got lots of, you know, grand designs in my head, but I'm really trying to keep it simple. Um, finish the program, go to the halfway house, um, spend another summer in Byron Bay because I was here. I was here over Christmas. Mm. Um, spend another summer here and then go from there. Like right. really keeping it small um, and focused really on the near future. That's um, actually yeah. a big part of um – this program here is that six months in Byron yeah. Bay afterwards yeah. or six to 12 months. I've made so many friends over the years because I've been here 30 years. Yeah. Of, I met my first husband who'd come out of the program in that six months and had two kids with him. I had, um, he ended up back in the program two yeah. more times after that. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, that it's quite amazing how Byron Bay, so much of the Byron, Byron Bay is and the people that have lived there over the years has have been this um the crew yeah 50 years from the buttery yeah it's um even lived there yeah going to the fellowship meetings like it's almost like they're fed by the buttery people just finish the program then never leave byron yeah um because i've always looked at this town as you know big party town not as like a big recovery town um and i got a totally different view on it now I love that. Yeah. It is a big because when I first moved here, all my friends were in recovery. Yeah. Um, it was so funny because I only knew and I all my people I live with in my houses were had come out of the buttery. Yeah. So I all I thought was it was just a big I always <laughs> thought I never thought of it as a big recovery town. Yeah. But that's that I hadn't actually sent it as a party town then. It wasn't until later. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's a big recovery. It's a big recovery town, town. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. All right. Thank you all so right. much. No, Matt. thank you, Mandy. We'll check in with Matt a bit later to see how he's going. Those friendships and support networks Matt talks about that are built outside the getting and using of drugs are really important for Matt if he's going to stay sober. It's one of the core values of a TC to lay the foundations for new friendships both within the therapeutic community of the Buttery and in the broader recovery community that exists in Byron Bay and beyond. It's so important that people in recovery aren't isolated. It's central to the objectives of the buttery. The 
You can't have a conversation about the buttery and its core values without talking to former CEO and executive director, Barry Evans. Barry was a leader at the buttery for 31 years, retiring in 2014. I once jokingly called him the Barry Lama at a fundraiser for the buttery. I think I was emceeing at the time and it kind of stuck. So I'm very sorry about that, Barry, but kind of suits you. Like many we've spoken to, Barry has a nostalgic affection and a passion for the place and the program where he dedicated his career. Barry's relationship with the buttery was tied in with his relocation from Sydney and his drive to find work with purpose. What started as a casual engagement grew into much, much more. Okay, well, uh, I moved to the Northern Rivers uh, from Sydney uh, in 79, 80. And in 1981, bought 10 acres out at Federal, 11 acres out at Federal and built a house out there. And in those days, uh, I had a um, teaching qualification and I I would do whatever whatever I could to get work. So it would be casual teaching, working on macadamia plantations, herding cattle, babysitting if there was a demand for it, whatever I could do to raise a dollar. And a friend of mine who was the director of the buttery at the time uh, knew that I had a, an art background. That was my um, training at uh, Teachers College. And he sort of encouraged me to apply for a job at the buttery teaching the art and craft program. So I was uh, keen to get a job. We were sort of juggling work and building a house um, and my wife at the time had been doing some secretarial work there. So, yeah, there was a connection there that, uh, you know, I was interested in what the buttery was offering and um, the idea of having work that was regular rather than worrying about a phone call to get a casual teaching position was attractive. So at university, my, in anthrop- I did anthropology as an honours year and I was studying uh community, the rise and fall of communities around the world. And, and Nimmin was obviously happening in those times and communities out there. And um, so I suppose there was this interest in the notion of therapeutic community, which was what the battery was running at then. And um, I also appreciated the opportunity to work with people who appreciated what they were doing, coming from a casual teaching background where essentially you were childminding day to day with children you didn't know and had no real relationship with to go into the buttery and then work there on a regular basis and uh, get to know the people and they'd enjoy what they were doing. And a lot of them were extremely creative people. He had incredible uh, ideas about what they wanted to make and do. When you arrived there, talk to me about the purpose and the drive of the place that you sort of tapped into. I think the, uh, well, the overriding sort of impression I had was this um, sense of community. There were uh, three houses where the residents lived and uh, they had roles and responsibilities in each house. You know, someone would cook, someone would clean, someone would do the chores and then they had broader responsibilities in the larger community. Um, So there was those functional aspects to it but also then they would have a morning meeting in one of the houses in which they would talk about what's in store for the day but then they would also start to address... um, behavioural issues, you know, it, where someone's attitude was starting to uh, cause an impact in the house or um, whether something positive had been done. So there was a lot of processing on sort of people's uh, development on a, on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. And, um, yeah, I was attracted to that sense of people working together and helping one another and being able to confront one another with very personal um, 
insights or views of that person's behaviour, which you know, a lot of people just initially would resist and sort of get upset about, but they'd have to come to terms with that and start to work through it and make decisions about whether they were prepared to change that behaviour and whether it was impacting on their, their addiction and whether it was a factor in sort of where they were at that particular time. And, you know, I, I thought I had a lot of respect for that process. You know, I thought it was you know, very constructive, very healthy. Mm. And it taught me a lot in terms of, you know, what you have to do with working with other, interacting with people, not just working with people, but interacting with people. How important, Barry, was the 12-step program um, to the therapeutic community then and the way it ran? Uh, when I first went there, it was extremely strong. Two of the staff were members of the 12-step fellowship and it was a strong feature even though there is an attempt to sort of provide separation between a 12-step program and a a non-government organisation, but nevertheless there was a strong influence. And um, the first 12-step meeting in this whole area was started at uh, Bangalore in the Anglican uh, church down there. And, yeah, it has spread across the whole area and so you can go to meetings anywhere you mm. want to go in the area nowadays. But uh, over time it was uh, we started to think about, well, are we always going to have people who are in the 12-step fellowship as the counsellors or do we need to have a view of addiction, which is not necessarily a disease model of addiction, but has a broader view, a biopsychosocial view is the classic term, but um, it does take into account a lot of aspects of a person's um, dependency. So gradually there was a... um, uh, almost a symbiotic relationship developed where people had the opportunity, they weren't compelled to, but they had the opportunity to go to a 12-step meeting. Uh, could it be a Narcotics Anonymous meeting or it could be an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting because we weren't purely catering to people with uh, narcotic dependency. Uh, anyone who had any sort of um, substance dependency or abuse um, was eligible. Mm. Um, and so we provided transport and we certainly relied on volunteers from the 12-step fellowships in the community come along and they'd drive our vehicles and take people to meetings and so forth. So there was two influences. There was that, uh, in lots of ways, three. There was the philosophy of the 12-step fellowship. There was the interaction of people in the buttery itself and the, and the growth that came from that, working with individuals, working with each other and with the counsellors who were there. And then when residents left the buttery, they could go to a halfway house that we were running, but also they had a support network of like-minded people in the community. Um, and then they would start to have a social network. Um, people understood why they weren't drinking or why they weren't using drugs. Um, so they'd move away from the old uh, network where they were using drugs or whatever they were doing, dealing or um, caught up in that whole uh, social network and they're starting to establish a new social network of people who were, had a different um, direction in life. And when I joined initially in 83, I, there were three houses and I think it had potential of 24 residents in treatment at any one time. But the numbers then were, I think, sitting around 18 or 19. One of the buildings was used as a craft area. Um, so accommodation was always, and it was a limited site. It's only like a three-acre site, and uh, so it was always a bit crowded. But anyway, we started to try and build up numbers, which we and uh, getting money for 
for addiction or any of these health services is always a challenge with the government. So contracts are um, not in perpetuity. They're two, three years if you're lucky and every year you have to reapply. We were at that stage the money was coming from the state government and the residents were contributing 80% of their Centrelink benefit to their board and lodging and then the balance would go into their private account for personal um, expenditure. So we started to look at how we could possibly build a service and uh, increase what it was doing. We managed to add um, uh, some money for extra beds. There there was uh, what they call merit beds which came along, which were magistrates referral into treatment. So a person would come into treatment for a period of three months, reappear before a magistrate, and the magistrate would determine whether they had a custodial sentence or whether they'd done enough and they could um, resume their life. They weren't obliged to stay after that, but they, they could choose to go into the second part of the program. We managed to secure money through some assistance from Northern Rivers Health at this time for um, a gambling addiction project. We also managed to secure money for an outreach uh, program, Intra, which uh, provides counselling out in the community for people with dependence issues, uh, mental health issues. Um, so they have a uh, one-on-one quiet relationship, or they run groups as well, but they were doing one-on-one counselling as well as running groups. And just before we, I left, we managed to get secure some money um, with the help of um, Don Page at that stage um, to get uh, money for a, um, uh, a movement from essentially methadone to abstinence. You know, it wasn't methadone as such, though people were transferred onto naltrexone and gradually sort of moved off that dependency until they were abstinent, so over a three-month period. And then they could elect to move back into the ther- or join the therapeutic community drug-free program. But I understand since then it's expanded into more outreach services and to accommodation services and, yeah, it's good to see it growing. Yeah. I mean, obviously the growth is an important part of any service, mm. you know, like that. What were the things when you were there that you would have liked to have seen or that you forecast that needed to happen, you know, in the future? Well, I suppose my uh, lament is the, as I said before, the physical size of the property we were on constrained what we could do, and it presented issues. We had to um, treat our own sewage for argument's sake. We had to the bore water was the water we used rather than mains water, and um, I think those things are only just being uh, able to be addressed now. Uh, we did have a property uh, in Dudgeons Lane, forty-acre property, which uh, the foresight of the people early on before I joined had bought that property and it had been vacant for a long time. But from my point of view, increasingly as we were getting bigger and we wanted to expand, it was to it was logical to move on to a, a new property. And at the time, um, Byron Shire Council, Jan Barham and a few other of the councillors, to their credits, could see what we were trying to do. We ended up with the unanimous approval of a development application um, so that meant we could, in theory, move on to the property, but the consequence were, or the problem was that uh, the cost of building was just astronomical and we didn't. the government wasn't going to give us the money to do so, so we were left to our own devices to try and raise the money. And there were differing uh, views of the sort of design that we would follow. And, um, and then after I left, the uh, people who stepped in, I think after me, 
for whatever reason I'm not privy to, decided to sell that property. Oh, and that happened. Because you know why? What I wondered, because I remember taking all my clothes off and being in the nude for one of your fundraisers. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, not just being in the nude. <laughs> it's, it's oh, like, just, Barry. Just, Barry. just showed oh, up. There you go, just yeah. showed up in the nude. No, I did, and it was a fundraiser. And I, I was going, what was I actually? I thought we were raising money for a new... Yeah. The new battery, that was with D-Tipping. That's right. Then who was running um, the Fever, which was yeah. um, an art. 48 hours of visual arts, yeah. Yeah, and that was, George, it was, <laughs> I sat for a portrait and I think it was in the nude. There was about 40 artists painting. Mm-hmm. So there's about 40 portraits of me still floating around the area in the nude for the buttery. <laughs> I showed my butt for the butt. Still yeah. raising <laughs> still raising money for the buttery. Well, well, raising something anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I think that's the thing about the batteries is uh, it did have a lot of a lot of community support. Mm. You know, yourself, Richard Maloney, who passed recently, uh, D, um, a lot of people in the, in the, in the bay gave their time and uh, gave money, attended those uh, dinners and the art auctions and everything we were trying to do to raise money and. and I, I felt that the Byron community had embraced the battery and that, that it was well supported. And I'm not sure what its reputation is at the moment within the community itself, but um, certainly in those days, that was my perception. Yeah. I think it was because I was trying to explain to George when we started doing this because I've got a long, you know, living there, I've done fundraisers and I've had a partner that went through the battery. And I was trying to explain, it's kind of weird, like in our community, I don't know if there's any other community that loves their drug rehabilitation service. Mm. <laughs> like people actually speak of the buttery like I've never heard anyone say anything negative. It's always been spoken of in reverence and it's this amazing place um, and and people have this real love in the community for it, which I think is, I guess we are a community that was founded in counterculture and it, it's, it's the it, act of that. It must come, it must be a two-way because I think there's, I mean, I'm an outsider, of course, I'm not from the region, so where there's the community but then there's obviously, I think I was talking about the value or the, who the buttery was and how they related to the community, which so there was mm. a conversation going on that they felt that, because I'm sure there's lots of things the community well, doesn't uh, support but they do support this. And they A lot of like, staff in the cafes. Yeah that's where I met people, is there were people that were coming out of the buttery mm. and in that interim period before they went back to their life, usually in Sydney or Melbourne, sometimes Brisbane, they'd get into a share house, start going to meetings and then start Benedici or, you know, making coffee. It wasn't even called barista back then. It was just called working in a coffee shop. Mm. And that would happen and people kind of, so a lot of businesses actually relied on um, their staff mm. coming, um, you know, for a year or two years at a time. Yep, yep. And they had a, a, a network, they had a job network, they had a housing network, they had a social support network. Um, yeah, and, and, I mean, people like Richard. Richard not only helped in the fundraising, he came along and was chair of the Buttery for a number of years. Um, people helped out in, in all sorts of ways and it's just fantastic. And, uh, yeah, that's my Fantastic. Was that frustrating for you? to have this kind of vision of where you were heading with the buttery 
to, to create this new site? Because I imagine there's always nostalgia for, for the existing site and it's hard to move forward off sometimes to say the buttery is bigger than the location. It's, it's become something else. Mm. Was, was that disappointing for you to not see that come to fruition? Absolutely. Um, but it, the thing that was frustrating was not only the loss of the property but drug rehab is still not a popular uh, field in the in the community. Trying to get a development application mm. to build a residential program for drug and alcohol rehabilitation in a community is just impossible. But what were the challenges? Was that the main challenge for you when you're working there? Like the challenges of being in the director of the buttery? What, what, you know, was it hard keeping the funding in place from year to year? It is. I, I had a brief conversation with Leonie Creighton, who's the current director, uh, on my way in. And, um, yeah, we both lament the fact that funding is sort of tied to, to one or two year cycles. And, um, I mean, that was uh, moved by the government some time ago, but yeah, it means every two years you've got to justify your existence and write another submission and go through that whole process creates all the uncertainty about not getting the money. What do you do? Mm. And what a waste of your time. Absolutely. Yeah. To be doing that constantly, yeah. that's got to be fatiguing. Well, I mean, you can understand the need to have um, the government to be reassured about what they're paying for. I was involved with a peak body for therapeutic communities that developed an accreditation model, which um, allows organisations, once they undertake that process, to public um, publicise the fact that they are an accredited therapeutic community. So the community and government can be reassured that they're providing that particular service. We're not rogues. We're not out there just ripping people off. Do you have any favourite stories from from the buttery? I mean, you're 31 years there. It's a bit on the spot. But are there any any, any little moments that shine, Barry? For well, I think the night the nice days were the early days. Like, um, and this sounds like my anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you were. When, when I first went there, the uh, I'm not sure you've been to the buttery, so yeah, you know yeah. that there's a lot. There was a large open area. It's a typical buttery de- butter depot. So it had this huge concrete floor outside the office, and we used to have our AGMs in uh, August for some reason, just or August September after the AFL Grand Final, and it was it was freezing cold. We had no heating. I, I remember one AGM where I had 44 gallon drums in each corner of the. <laughs> <laughs> of that building with yeah, burning to heat the whole place up. Um, we used to do things like put plays on. The residents and the staff would write a play. The residents would get it dressed up in clothes and things that they would never, never dream of doing. You know, they'd have to drop all their fronts and get out there in front of people who are invited in from the broader community. Fantastic. And, and perform in a play that they built the set for, they built the costumes for, they rehearsed for. Um, that those were simple days, but yeah, lovely, enjoyable days. I love that because yeah. can you imagine, like, because very often people in full active addiction, you, you don't think of them dressed up in a silly pair of pants doing. <laughs> we had great skits. Yeah, guys, would, they would take off. They would take off the area in which they came from. So you had somebody came from Paddington in Sydney. They'd be in lycra shorts with a bike and a helmet, and someone else had come from the out the west, and they'd be in a, a flayed shirt and sort of you know. That's great. So that that was there early, but somehow along the way it got lost. If you like, it doesn't doesn't happen anymore. Uh, no, well, I don't think it does. I mean, yeah. it's been a while since I've been actually at yeah. the buttery. But um, I mean, again, space was a premium. We had to we put a floor over that uh, common area I was talking about. We changed some space into offices. 
had to put offices upstairs and a meeting room outside. So more and more the space where you can do those things just gets um, encroached or eroded away. So, yeah, I'm not sure what program they have in terms of the activities now, but that was great for the self-esteem of the residents and I've got some lovely photos that um, I have, you know, of those times and people still can talk about those times and how much they enjoyed it, yeah. So when it came to ever having to, if someone broke the rules, because your rules are, who made the rules, by the way? What were the, the rules were about staying there? Do you remember what they were? Four cardinals. Yeah. And the rest were uh, deemed to be guidelines. Okay. Tell us the four cardinals. Well, no drugs. Yep. No sex, um, no violence and no stealing. Okay. Okay. So you broke those rules and? You were basically automatic expulsion. Right. Yeah. It's Pardon? Escorted out? Oh, yeah. it wasn't that, it wasn't <laughs> oh, like that. I mean, unless somebody really, really threw a tanty, but most of the time they would um, be confronted by their behaviour and they would, if they were, yeah, if they were at all open to it, they'd, they'd acknowledge it. You know, it might, really, it might mean if they, they left with the person they had sex with or um, they left and then they might apply to come back, but they'd be given time out and have to reapply and they might have to go to the back of the queue and wait their turn to come back in. But they wouldn't be ex- ex- um, totally written off, but the behaviour would be addressed and then, then you'd uh, have to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guidelines were brought to, if someone breached a guideline, of which there were quite a few, but they were written and everybody received a copy of them on entry and you had to go away and read them and sign off and say you abide by them. If they were breached, they'd come back to a community meeting that was adjudicated by staff or on the day it would be the resident who was uh, the weekly coordinator for the, in our case for the day uh, and they'd have to work through the issue and whether there was a whether they'd go back in the program. So they, if they're in program two, they might go back to program one and rethink what they were doing or some other consequence for their behaviour. At this point... I'd just like to talk about Ozzie and Mavis Jackson. They live in this tiny little house right on the Buttery property and it's not 100 metres away, it's like 30 metres. It's pretty well, you know, right on the grounds of the Buttery. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because when they talked about this house, you know, that they were next door, I thought it was like a farm distance, you know, 100 metres away. Oh, it's but right No, there. no, it's right there. It's literally, yeah, you're right on the but boundary. Don't you yeah. think what what's sort of come up and I've noticed, you know, as we go through and along in the podcast, so many people mention the relationship and how supportive they were. And I went, well, it's unusual to keep reflecting back onto your neighbours, but you actually realise that their acceptance and their involvement and the fact that they didn't push back about having, you know, what is ostensibly a drug and alcohol rehabilitation service in their backyard meant that the buttery could be successful. Because if they'd pushed back at it in council, you, it probably wouldn't have been successful like the, the, the whole, the buttery. It probably would have had to close its doors. Having those positive relationships are uh, uh, kind of integral to its success and integral to, I guess, sending a message to the community that this was a place that was engaged and inclusive and not something to be fearful of. It was something to embrace. And that message actually went from Mavis and Ozzy right out into the broader community. And as part of, I think, why the Buttery is such a loved place 
in our entire community. Yeah, I think you're right there as well. Because the buttery is out of town, um, they, Mavis and Aussie were the primary point of resistance and they they allowed it to thrive and that's really what spread it. It allowed the buttery to take hold and, and to really radiate from there. So I think Aussie and Mavis... We have a lot to thank for them for. I think they do. And, mm. and look, we would have been great to speak to Mavis. She was well into her 90s when we, just as we started making this, she passed away about a month or two beforehand. So we never got to speak to her. But I think the story really is, is that their support and their involvement and their interest in what was happening at the Buttery is actually a very quiet part of the Buttery's success. She was a special person and you know where she lives yes. or lived. Yeah, she'd bring over biscuits or come to a fundraiser and give us 10 bucks or 100 bucks. And There's something very nurturing about having an on-site grandma yeah. for any, and I don't think if anyone's thought about that in any other therapeutic community, to have an actual nana, an on-site nana. Well, it, and not only that, I mean, when, when the people of Dudgeons Lane were concerned about Buttery building out on the property, Mavis was the person who spoke to that meeting or one of the people who spoke to that meeting saying, look, I live two metres away. We share a fence that's only a part, not even a metre high. You can step over the fence. That's how, that's my security. And people and the residents, to their credit, never breached that security. That space was always hers. They never went in there. The house was never touched. She was never harassed. They didn't go in there. They just respected the fact she was there and and she respected our space. It was you know, a really great relationship. Yeah, you don't fuck with Mavis. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Right. Cardinal sin number five <laughs> or possibly number one. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> she I love that. You've been listening to To Their Door, a podcast that tells the 50-year history of the buttery. In the next episode, we're going to hear from Matt again as he gets ready to leave. We'll also speak to some of the people in my life who found recovery through the program at the Buttery. We'll speak to my ex-partner, Rhett, father of my two daughters, who attended multiple times, and my friends, Caitlin and John. So for me, even as someone who didn't personally attend the Buttery, I'm still a beneficiary of the amazing work they do. You have been listening to Mandy Nolan and George Catsey. This is an Authentic You media production.